Hi, listeners. It's Richard. Before we get started, some bittersweet news about our show. Today's episode will be the last for Dictators. When we started in January of 2020, we never could have imagined the outpouring of support we would receive. It's because of you, our incredible fans, that we were able to examine such intriguing figures over the years. From robber barons and tyrannical popes to world conquerors and Hitler's henchmen, we traveled through time to explore their reigns and ruins, and we can't thank you enough for coming along for the ride. A special thank you is owed to my wonderful co-host, Kate, our team of dedicated researchers, writers, and producers, and countless others who work tirelessly to bring you these fantastic episodes each week. So for everyone here at Dictators and Parcast, thank you for listening. Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the morning of June 8, 1794, hundreds of thousands of Parisian citizens took to the streets in celebration. They carried laurel wreaths and waved tricolor flags, the colors of the new French Republic. Many gathered to hear the revolutionary voice of Maximilien Robespierre, the leader of the Cult of Supreme Being. This festival was the inauguration of the cult, and Robespierre hoped to inspire the crowds to combine faith and patriotism in a new kind of religious fervor. However, rumors swirled among the crowd. Some said Robespierre was acting like a high priest, or worse, that he was turning himself into a god. To them, he'd gone too far. Despite his role in the revolution, now they called him a tyrant. And in revolutionary France, there was only one solution for tyranny, the guillotine. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're exploring the lives of famous revolutionaries. These men overthrew brutal and unjust regimes only to transform into ruthless oppressors themselves. Last time, we began our dive into the life of Maximilien Robespierre. We followed Robespierre's journey from idealistic lawyer to budding revolutionary. Within a few years, he became a leading voice among the radical Jacobins, demanding monumental change in France. This time, we'll explore Robespierre's influence in the French Revolution and how it led to the bloody era known as the Reign of Terror. The violence quickly took on a life of its own and consumed its founders, including Robespierre. Coming up, we'll head back to France. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? 
Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. For centuries, France was an absolute monarchy, meaning the king ruled with impunity. But in the summer of 1791, that changed. France became a constitutional monarchy. Louis XVI remained king, but France would now be ruled by the people. One of the key men behind this change was an idealistic lawyer named Maximilien Robespierre. He was one of the hundreds of men called by King Louis XVI to solve France's financial crisis. Instead, they reshaped France to give power to the people. With the adoption of the new constitution in 1791, Robespierre had seemingly accomplished his mission of change and returned to his home in Arras. However, Robespierre was prone to believe there was conspiracy and treason all around him. No sooner had he returned to Arras than he realized the revolution was under threat. He refused to stand idly by and let his work be undone. In late November 1791, 33-year-old Robespierre returned to Paris to work as a public prosecutor. Though he was no longer a member of the government, he couldn't resist dabbling in politics. So he rejoined the Jacobin Club. Almost immediately, he was declared their leader. Robespierre found a new, aggressive energy running through Paris. Many radical Jacobins and delegates in the Legislative Assembly had convinced themselves that France needed to go to war with the rest of Europe. According to their logic, many of the nobles who had fled France were conspiring with other European monarchs to destroy the revolution. Thus, France's internal problems, like soaring bread prices and a weak economy, were the result of an international conspiracy. While Robespierre believed in such a plot, he did not think war was the answer. In his mind, it would only exacerbate France's problems and give the revolution's enemies a chance to strike. Worse, he believed that war would likely lead to a battle-hardened general seizing absolute power. Robespierre's hesitancy was not well-received. He found himself increasingly isolated, even among the Jacobins. He quickly realized that the political winds had shifted. This wasn't unusual, as political power constantly adjusted throughout revolutionary France. At the start of 1792, the Legislative Assembly was dominated by Deputy Jacques-Pierre Brousseau and his Girondin faction. Unlike the Jacobins, they were more moderate in their views. But the Girondins also believed in the foreign threat to the revolution. And since many French nobles took refuge in Austria, the Girondins convinced the assembly to declare war on Austria on April 20th, 1792. With virtually the whole legislature rallying around the war effort, the dissenter Robespierre was ostracized. Within the space of a few months, Robespierre went from hero to social pariah. At first, Robespierre seemed correct in his dire warnings. A month into the war, the Austrians hammered the French. 
Then, in early June, Prussia joined the fight to help their Austrian allies. By the end of July, armies from both countries were approaching France's border. On July 25th, the Duke of Brunswick, who led this Allied army, issued a proclamation to France. He warned that if the French royal family came to harm, the people of Paris would be ruthlessly punished. Rather than scare Parisians, the Duke of Brunswick's declaration had the opposite effect. Throughout the early days of the revolution, very few citizens actually called for the end of the monarchy. But thanks to Brunswick, now those calls were louder than ever. Some were more impatient than others to see the king fall. Technically, Louis XVI was still king. However, a year earlier, he and his family attempted to flee France, but were caught. Since then, they had been living under house arrest at the Tuileries Palace. On August 10th, a mob of National Guardsmen and sans-culottes, or militant commoners, attacked the Tuileries Palace. After massacring the guards, the mob seized King Louis and Queen Marie Antoinette. It seemed the monarchy was all but finished. Robespierre embraced the insurrection as an expression of the people's will and as a chance to get himself back into the limelight. Thanks to his vocal support of the revolt, he was elected to the local government called the Paris Commune. After his election, the Jacobin Club swung back into his corner. From this base of support, Robespierre called for a completely new kind of government and a new constitution. He also made sure no one got in the way of his goals. Robespierre accused the Legislative Assembly of ignoring the people's thirst for vengeance against the upper classes who represented the counter-revolution. Thus, he successfully lobbied for the creation of a special tribunal that would seek out the revolution's enemies. Robespierre's belief that Parisians wanted blood wasn't unfounded. As Prussian and Austrian troops drew closer to the capital, rumors swirled that imprisoned counter-revolutionaries were plotting to break out and join the Allied army. Gripped by panic and xenophobic outrage, Parisians stormed the city's various prisons. For several days in September, the mob massacred thousands of inmates. Many were innocent working-class people that had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. But others, like the Princess de Lamballa, were killed to make a statement. The princess was a close friend to Queen Marie Antoinette, so the mob hacked the princess to death and brought her head to the queen's window. Though Robespierre believed violence was necessary, even he acknowledged that the mob had gone too far. He exclaimed, Still more blood. Ah! They'll end up drowning the revolution in it, these wretches. In the midst of the September massacres, Robespierre's wish for a national convention was granted. The nation went to the polls to elect the deputies for the convention, and Robespierre won election as the first deputy. Despite this success, there was still a threat to the revolution. The Allied army. If they reached Paris, the alliance was certain to crush Robespierre, the convention, and the entire revolution. 
Luckily for Robespierre, on September 20th, the French miraculously halted the Allied army at Valmy, roughly 100 miles from Paris. Bolstered by the victory, the National Convention officially abolished the monarchy and declared that France was now a republic. By now, the Jacobins were firmly at the helm and their Girondin enemies were pushed to the margins. At the convention meetings, the Jacobins often sat on the highest benches, earning them the nickname Montagnard or Mountaineers. Tensions between the group, collectively referred to as the Mountain, and the Girondins were fierce. The Girondins accused Robespierre as the mastermind behind the September massacres and claimed that he wanted to take sole power. However, the greatest issue of contention was the fate of King Louis XVI. In December 1792, the convention tried Louis for high treason. A month later, they unanimously found Louis guilty. And the most important concern became Louis's punishment. Many Jacobins and militants sans-culottes believed Louis's disastrous reign was a betrayal to France. As such, they demanded Louis be put to death. However, others in the convention realized that the king was still popular in many parts of the country. His execution could destroy support for the Republic. Robespierre argued that since the former king betrayed his subjects, death was the only option. While he personally abhorred the death penalty, he said, Louis must die because the homeland must live. When the time came to vote on Louis's execution, Robespierre was among the first to vote yes. In the end, some 380 deputies voted for an immediate execution while only around 300 voted against. So on January 21, 1793, King Louis XVI's head went under the guillotine. King Louis's execution changed the revolution. As historian Jeremy D. Popkin notes, if the king could be beheaded, the same fate could happen to anyone. The most vulnerable were the Girondins, who voted against the execution. Meanwhile, those who had voted for the king's death, including Robespierre and the radical Jacobins, knew that if royalists ever returned to power, their own lives would be forfeit. But they felt it was a risk worth taking. Soon, news of the execution reverberated across all of Europe. Abhorred by the regicide, England and Spain joined the Allied army in their war against France. The French Republic was now surrounded on all sides. Now, more than ever, counter-revolution threatened to destroy everything gained by the citizens. Robespierre knew there was only one weapon that could protect his country and save the ideals of the Republic. The guillotine. Coming up, the reign of terror begins. Now back to the story. On January 21st, 1793, the chaotic French Revolution took another dramatic turn with the execution of King Louis XVI. Among those who had led the charge for the king's death was Maximilien Robespierre. By now, Robespierre and his radical Jacobins were the most powerful group in France. 
Unfortunately for Robespierre, Louis' execution horrified the rest of Europe. Britain and Spain joined Austria and Prussia against France. These allies had one mission, stop the revolution from spreading at all costs. Robespierre hadn't initially supported the war. However, with Europe closing in, he agreed with a motion in the National Convention to conscript 300,000 men. However, not everyone in France was pleased with such a high draft. Western France was a bastion of royalist sentiment. When the draft order came, a major rebellion broke out, called the War in the Vendée. So while France faced a legion of foreign enemies, it simultaneously fought a brutal civil war. But the situation for the Republic became even more dire. In early April 1793, French General Charles-Francois Dumouriez switched sides to the Austrians. His defection was a massive blow for multiple reasons. First, he was the hero at the Battle of Valmy, which halted the Austrian and Prussian advance on Paris the previous fall. Second, Dumouriez was one of the Girondins' most prominent allies. Robespierre used the defection to stoke fears of internal enemies. He told the convention that sweeping measures had to be implemented in order to root out other counter-revolutionaries, and the only punishment for traitors was death. With military disaster looming, Robespierre proposed that an emergency cabinet be formed to tackle the crisis. On April 5th, the convention created a Committee of Public Safety, a kind of executive board within the convention. Its duty was to oversee the defense of France from both internal and external enemies. At the time of its creation, Robespierre was not selected to join the committee, though several Jacobin allies were. Though the Jacobins didn't have an outright majority, they did have plenty of deputies in their corner. With their presence on the committee and under pressure from the militant sans-culotte, Robespierre struck out against his enemies. On June 2nd, the convention voted for the arrest of two ministers and 29 leading Girondin deputies. Most of the Girondins escaped the dragnet and went into hiding. With no one to stop them, Robespierre, the Jacobins, and the Committee of Public Safety essentially controlled the government. How much they controlled the country, though, was another matter. As a result of the Girondin purge, roughly 60 of France's 83 administrative departments refused to acknowledge the authority of the National Convention. And as if that wasn't enough, the whole of France was still in complete turmoil. Civil war in the West raged, while food shortages and economic uncertainty remained prominent. Meanwhile, the Prussians and the Austrians inched closer to France, and the Spanish crossed the Pyrenees and invaded from the south. With the Republic on the verge of catastrophe, Robespierre abandoned his commitment to a free press and individual liberty. He now saw the world in stark terms. Everyone was either a patriot or a traitor. With that in mind, he accepted an invitation to join the Committee of Public Safety at the end of July 1793. Once Robespierre joined, the committee entered a new phase. He 
he recognized he could use its powers to finally achieve his dream, the complete overhaul of society. But Robespierre did not lead the Committee of Public Safety. He was one of 12 and didn't always get his way. Still, his reputation and popularity ensured he was the most dominating force within the committee. The committee's main objective was victory in the war, both at home and abroad. And in the pursuit of that victory, Robespierre and the Committee of Public Safety unleashed what would be called the Reign of Terror. The terror was never planned in advance. There was no vast plot nor a predetermined date when it should begin. In fact, to this day, the exact start date remains a matter of debate. However, most historians agree that the bloodiest phase of the French Revolution began on September 5, 1793. That day, a delegation from Paris asked the National Convention to, quote, make terror the order of the day. Though Robespierre despised uncoordinated bloodletting, like in the September massacres, there was nothing organized in the initial days of the terror. Rather than a carefully plotted program, it was like a patchwork of emergency decrees, all with the purpose of defeating the counter-revolution. To lead the terror, the Committee of Public Safety recreated the Revolutionary Tribunal. Once again, Robespierre did not sit on the tribunal. However, his friends and even his landlord did. Thus, Robespierre's interests were represented. The tribunal judgment process was relatively simple. Anyone accused of hoarding grain, possessing anti-revolutionary literature, dodging conscription, or speaking ill of the government stood trial. Once the accused received judgment, there was no appeal. It was off to the guillotine. The tribunal unabashedly made violence its reason for being, as they steadily sent more and more suspects to the guillotine, justice became an afterthought. Those sent to death immediately were either the Jacobins' political enemies, like the Girondins, or victims of petty feuds with members of the club. No enemy of the revolution could expect mercy. Neither women, children, nor former nobility were exempt. And on October 16th, even deposed Queen Marie Antoinette fell victim to the guillotine. Beyond inciting violence, the committee also oversaw France's war effort. And in the fall, the French won major victories against the Spanish and the Austrians. Even the economy marginally improved thanks to the introduction of price controls. By early 1794, it appeared as if France was on the verge of recovery. As such, the people called for civil liberties to be reinstated and for the new constitution to finally be instated. But Robespierre believed the revolution was still in danger. Like his Roman hero Cicero, Robespierre saw enemies of the Republic lurking in every shadow. As a result of this paranoia, the terror set its sights on fellow Jacobins at the beginning of 1794. In a February speech, Robespierre justified going after club members as a necessity to create a virtuous state. One of the first to go was Jacques Hébert, a radical journalist and the leading voice of the sans-culotte. 
Ironically, he and his followers didn't think Robespierre was going far enough, and they attempted a coup. However, the committee caught them and sent them to the guillotine. Next came Anacharsis Klutz, a Prussian Jacobin and a proponent of expanding the revolution throughout Europe. Klutz was one of the most passionate and articulate supporters of the revolution, but Robespierre accused him of being a foreign agent, and so he was guillotined alongside Hébert. Perhaps the most famous revolutionary outside of Robespierre was Georges Danton. Danton was a former Minister of Justice and the first president of the Committee of Public Safety. More importantly, he and Robespierre were close allies, and Danton often defended Robespierre. However, by early 1794, Danton's views had become more moderate. He vocally opposed the terror, and he accused Robespierre of going too far. Forced to choose between the revolution and his friend, Robespierre chose the revolution. So on April 5th, Robespierre sent Danton to the guillotine. By early April, there were nearly 80,000 suspects in prison throughout the country. All political trials were moved to Paris, so Robespierre and his allies could gain more control over them. As the terror took on a life of its own, Robespierre continued to appoint close friends and neighbors to the Revolutionary Tribunal. Often, the tribunal tried people in batches of 60 people at a time. Found guilty in the morning, they'd all be executed in the afternoon on the same scaffold. Soon, the Paris streets filled with the blood of innocence. The death penalty no longer bothered Robespierre. The executions were all in the service of the revolution. By May, he and his allies eliminated all of their enemies, including the Girondins, as well as anyone who followed Hébert and Danton. Thanks to the various crises that France faced, Robespierre could insist that desperate times called for desperate measures. However, this meant that as France's prospects improved, the pace of the terror should have abated. Unfortunately, the opposite proved true. Once the terror had been unleashed, it was like a beast that had to constantly be fed. By the spring of 1794, French citizens became increasingly wary about the endless bloodletting. They wanted an end to the violence, and it was becoming clear that meant eliminating the face of the terror, Robespierre himself. Coming up, the terror consumes its champion. Now back to the story. In May 1794, the reign of terror had been destroying France for roughly eight months. Using his highly influential power on the Committee of Public Safety, 36-year-old Maximilien Robespierre sent his political enemies to the guillotine, even those once considered friends and allies. As the terror continued and more people were condemned to death, many in France were ill at ease. Some wondered if it was time to put an end to all the bloodshed. Though Robespierre and the Committee of Public Safety ostensibly held total power, they still were technically part of the National Convention. This parliament was created to write and establish a new constitution, 
not dispense unilateral judgments. Many deputies question Robespierre's execution of so many popular patriots like Georges Danton. Unfortunately, all they got was more death. According to historian William Doyle, the definition of political crimes became absurdly vague, allowing anyone to be arrested and executed for anything. One Parisian even remarked, quote, No citizen is sure of being alive in two more days. Whether or not Robespierre heard the people's fear and dissatisfaction isn't entirely clear. If he did, it likely didn't matter to him. All he cared about was protecting the revolution, no matter how many lives it cost. In May 1794, amid the sweeping violence, Robespierre suddenly introduced a new concept that he believed would revitalize French society. He called it the Cult of the Supreme Being. Robespierre wanted his cult to be a kind of state religion with new festivals and forms of worship. He hoped it would unify France in the celebration of Republican virtues. He also wanted the cult to replace the Catholic Church, which the government often viewed as counter-revolutionary. The cult of supreme being was, in many respects, the fullest realization of Robespierre's obsession with creating a virtuous society. This was what all that violence and bloodshed was for. On May 7th, Robespierre revealed his desire for the cult of supreme being to the National Convention. Swept up by Robespierre's impassioned speech, the convention passed a decree which made the cult official. One month later, on June 8th, Paris held the festival in honor of the supreme being. In essence, it was the cult's inaugural party as France's official religion. Beaming with excitement, Robespierre led the ceremony around the Champ de Mars, appearing like the cult's head priest. He stood to address the crowd of roughly 500,000 people. He told them that the supreme being, quote, instills remorse and terror in the bosom of the triumphant oppressor and tranquility and pride in the heart of the innocent. Unfortunately for Robespierre, many of those in attendance, especially the convention's deputies, looked upon the festival in anger. They were especially offended to see Robespierre giving himself the festival's central role. To them, it appeared as if Robespierre was making himself into a god. It's unlikely Robespierre actually thought of himself as a god, even though his subsequent actions didn't help appease their concerns. Two days after the festival, Robespierre pressured the convention into passing a new law which essentially removed the last legal safeguards protecting innocent citizens from accusations. A few brave voices in the convention openly spoke out against the law, but most kept their fear and anger bottled up. Since the fall of prominent deputies like Georges Danton, no one in the convention felt safe. But the few vocal deputies weren't the only ones letting Robespierre know that they despised the ongoing terror. Throughout the summer, Robespierre constantly received letters lambasting him and threatening his life. Many wondered if Robespierre would ever realize that the people wanted the terror to end. Then, out of nowhere, a rumor spread that Robespierre had seen the light. 
word got out that Robespierre was going to speak at the National Convention and announce a conclusion to the Reign of Terror. On July 26, 1794, Robespierre stood before the convention. As usual, he opened with a diatribe about the necessity of virtue. But then, rather than promise an end to terror, Robespierre doubled down on his suspicions of a vast conspiracy to crush the revolution. Now, he claimed, it went all the way to the convention and the Committee of Public Safety. The two-hour speech seemed like the ramblings of a man who had lost touch with reality. It was vague enough to make everyone listening believe they were considered among the conspiracy and perhaps next to meet the guillotine. Robespierre threatened to purge the convention, but refused to name all his suspects. This proved to be a mistake, as he had finally pushed the convention to its breaking point. When Robespierre concluded his speech, the majority of the convention shouted him down. Robespierre was shocked, as such an outcry had never happened to him during his time in government. But the dressing down was the least of Robespierre's problems. Ironically, by insisting that there was a conspiracy within the convention, Robespierre made that conspiracy a reality. Those who feared that they were being targeted had little choice but to plot against him. That same evening, 16 men plotted to take down Robespierre. Among the cabal were members of the Committee of Public Safety. One of them later said, quote, The struggle wasn't a question of principles, but of killing. The death of Robespierre had become a necessity. On July 27th, the National Convention began its usual morning meeting with Robespierre in attendance. During the meeting, one of his supporters got up to defend Robespierre for his refusal to name the traitors he hoped to purge. One of the conspirators, a deputy named Jean Lambert Talian, interrupted Robespierre's ally. This led to a commotion throughout the hall, and before long, another conspirator demanded the arrest of Robespierre's supporters. As the convention quickly turned against Robespierre, he approached the dais and tried to defend himself. However, he was shouted down with cries calling him a tyrant and demanding his removal. Talian stepped forward and proclaimed that he had a dagger with him. If the convention didn't bring Robespierre to justice, then he would use that dagger to strike him down personally. The death threat launched the hall into even more chaos. Deputies shouted accusations at Robespierre and continued to prevent him from defending himself. Finally, Robespierre managed to shout, I ask for death. Eventually, the convention formally called for Robespierre and his allies' arrest. However, the warden at a nearby prison refused to place them behind bars. As a result, Robespierre miraculously escaped and made his way to the Hotel de Ville. While Robespierre calculated his next moves, his supporters tried to rally the National Guards of Paris to block the convention. While some armed militants came to his aid, most sections of the city ignored the request. The evening was full of uncertainty. No one knew if Paris was about to erupt in armed insurrection, as it had so many times since the start of the revolution. 
Finally, late into the evening, soldiers burst into Robespierre's room and a shot rang out. A bullet ripped through Robespierre's left cheek and smashed his teeth and jaw. Exactly who fired that shot remains a mystery. Some claim that the shooter was one of the soldiers sent to arrest Robespierre. Others have said Robespierre tried to take his own life. Regardless of how the injury happened, he was taken to the Committee of Public Safety and spent the next several hours lying on a table in agony. One witness remarked, Isn't he a fine-looking king? For eight hours, Robespierre lay in a pool of his own blood, awaiting his fate. He must have known there was only one outcome, and soon it was confirmed. The Revolutionary Tribunal condemned Robespierre to death. On July 28th, Robespierre and 21 of his allies were taken to the Place de la Révolution, a massive square in Paris. It was the same place where King Louis, Marie Antoinette, and many others met their end. Now it was Maximilien Robespierre's turn. Robespierre pathetically approached the scaffold. When he arrived, the executioner ripped the bandage off his jaw, causing him to scream in pain. Then he was forced down into a prone position, his neck secured in the wooden stocks. The executioner let go of the rope, releasing the heavy, angled blade. An instant later, Maximilien Robespierre's head fell into the basket below. The reign of terror was over. Officially, Robespierre's reign of terror claimed 16,000 victims, many of whom died over petty crimes. A man named Francis Batram, for example, died for producing sour wine. And Mary Angelica Plaisant, a seamstress, was guillotined for shouting, A fig for the nation! Of course, there were thousands of unofficial victims, men, women, and children who didn't meet the guillotine. Rather, these were the victims who died in prison or took their own lives. Though the reign of terror ended, the revolution did not. The National Convention eventually drafted a new constitution. It laid out a plan for the government to be led by a five-man directory, However, a few years later, a Corsican general named Napoleon Bonaparte seized power for himself, and he declared the revolution over. Robespierre's fear that a successful military officer would seize absolute power came true. Maximilien Robespierre never intended to be a tyrant. When he arrived at the Estates General in 1789, he wanted to see his virtuous ideals come to fruition. The monarchy failed ordinary people, and he hoped he could change France for the good. But his desire to create a virtuous republic consumed him. His obsession with transforming France into a utopia blinded him to reality. And as the chance of ever achieving his dream became more unlikely, the more desperate he became, and liberty was soon abandoned for bloody terror. In the years since Robespierre's death, his liberal ideals have flourished throughout the world. Ideals like liberty, equality, and republicanism. But his name will always be synonymous with the terror and bloodshed used 
to achieve those ideals. Thanks for listening to Dictators. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Joe Guerra and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, produced by Travis Clark, and sound designed by Juan Borda. Our hosts are Richard Rossner and me, Kate Leonard. Thanks again for listening to Dictators. For those who have been with us since the beginning, we appreciate your loyalty and support. And for those who joined us down the line, be sure to catch up on any episodes you may have missed, close to 150 in total. You can also follow Parcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to get updates from around our network, discover new Parcast series, and connect with a community of fans just like you.